This is the Dennis Miller Option. Your source of opinions, stories, and laughs from comedian and inactivist Dennis Miller, his guy Friday Christian Blatt, and superstar producer Lindsay Floyd. And now, it's him, Dennis Miller. Hey folks, welcome to the Dennis Miller Option. I was talking to my guest, Alan Zweibel, or a little earlier in the week, and I told him he's one of the nicest geniuses I've ever met. Because sometimes, and I'm willing to give geniuses a wide... Uh, a wide beam because, uh, you know, I, I always figure they're, they got a little Amadeus in them. So if they're a little prickly, but Zwebel, literally the perfect confluence of like Larry Gelbart and Atticus Finch, truly a sweet cat. He's got a book coming out. Alan Zwebel, the book is Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. Welcome to the show, the great Alan Zwebel. Thanks so much, Dennis. How you doing? Um, I'm groovy, baby. And uh, tell me about, well, give me the uh, meta view on the book and then we'll get into the details. Well, you know what it is, basically. I look back at this uh, life that I've been leading and um, I've been having some fun. And, and I realized that so much of it is uh, me putting funny words into the mouths of other people. I've been really, really lucky not only to have had great collaborations, but it extends, it covers almost my God, am I old, like 45 years mm -hmm. of American comedy, starting with writing jokes for comedians in the Catskill Mountains and then being one of the original writers on SNL and co-creating its Gary Shandling show and my collaborations with Martin Short and Billy Crystal. And, um, you know, I figured, okay, it's about time to, uh, to talk about it a little bit. So that's what the book is. Well, I can I see here that you were getting seven bucks a shot off the Borschbelt guys. I, I, I must have got in much later because I think Rodney at that point I sold a couple to Rodney and boy, nothing nothing lights your fuse like the great Jack Roy picking up a joke. You think I could play this game. But seven bucks way back when. I'm trying to think who Oh man, you know, that was the going rate. I graduated college in nineteen seventy-two. Uh, I started writing for the also Rams, who was still up in the Catskill Mountains because all the big comedians who went on to fame and fortune, like the Buddy Hackett's and Dean Martin right. and Jerry Lewis, they were long gone. So I was left with every Morty, Dickie, Freddie and Lee <laughs> that ever lived. Was Dick Capri still up there? Dick Capri was still there. What a nice, sweet man. And to this very day, he's still using... <laughs> A routine I wrote about his family tree. Oh, so, you're kidding me. Dick Capri. I'm so happy to hear he's still alive. And that's so beautiful. He, he's still alive. He's living somewhere in Florida. In fact, I had a gig there where I was going to do a live performance. You know, I, I do a lot of these speaking engagements all over the country. And I had one that was going to be in Boca Raton on April 21st. Obviously, that was, you know, it's going to be uh, rescheduled. And Dick was going to come to it. I, I haven't seen him, God, in 30 years, 35 years, but he's still alive and kicking. This cracks me up when I see what you were doing as your day job, because I did this job. This is what I was doing when I first started comedy. You worked in a deli? I was slicing meat at a place in a, a chain of stores in Pittsburgh called Giant Eagle. I remember one day I was slicing pressed ham, and the woman kept saying, fucking thinner. And I said, Christ, this is turning into the uh, shower curtain and psycho. I can't <laughs> do this anymore. But in uh, cleaning those blades at night, the most dangerous occupation oh, no, on earth. Oh, no, it was all God, it was a high wire act, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know. And <laughs> wait a second, Alan. I have to ask you some local knowledge because only deli slicers would know this. I work with an old cat who sliced the tip of his finger off cleaning the blade, and he had to put it in a pouch of silver nitrate to make it heal because the cut's so clean. There's nowhere for it to adhere. Have you ever heard that apocryphal story? Because I actually saw it. I've heard that. Yeah, for you deli aspirants out there, if you're going to cut your finger, <laughs> do it in a jagged way so that it can sort of <laughs> interlock when they try to put it back together. And there you go. That's why he's a great writer. The ability to <laughs> co to collate that, go to deli aspirants, and then encourage them to do a jagged edge is, is so funny to me. We're talking to the great Alan Zweibel. And like I said, he has been there, uh, Boswell, to so many uh, Sam Johnson's over the years, but Jesus, you have such a funny delivery, Alan, and I've been on stage with you at the TCM Festival. You must have tried it out at the beginning. Did you not dig being your own stand-up? Tell me about that. Well, you know what I did, Dennis? When I wrote for all those comics in the Catskills, uh, I was going nowhere fast. You know, I was 21. They were in their mid-40s, early 50s, so I found myself writing, you know, fight uh, uh, jokes about their fat wives and things mm -hmm. that would have made my parents' friends laugh. So I took all the jokes they wouldn't buy from me. I made a stand-up comedy act for myself. And you remember in New York at the time, there were two clubs. This is the mid-70s, Catch a Rising Star and the Improvisation. So mm -hmm. I went on stage and the plan was to deliver the jokes. Those old guys wouldn't... Um, buy from mm -hmm. me with the hopes that a manager or an agent would come in, like the material and want to represent me. So that I did do stand up that lasted four months until a man named Lorne Michaels mercifully <laughs> walked into the club, mm -hmm. told me I was the worst comedian he ever saw, but liked <laughs> the material and gave me a job. <laughs> I always favored Catch because Rick Newman at least looked like Carlos Santana. Then I'd go down to the improv and Bud had a fucking monocle in. He's lecturing me. And then I'm catching up <laughs> no. from Warner Klemper here. What are you fucking kidding <laughs> That's me? That's exactly right. And you took your life in your hands. God forbid you walked outside of the club onto oh. the sidewalk. I remember one night, Alan, you remember the configuration for the folks who don't know. Catch was down at 41st and 9th, I think, or something. It was a rough area, and it had a door right near the stage. Hot summer night, the door's still open. Rick Overton's on stage, and somewhere near that uh, catch, they had a store, one of those called Everything's Big Stores, where they had, uh, <laughs> nobody could afford to outfit their apartments, so they had huge jacks and pencils <laughs> and things. That, it was something's big, I think the store is called. A guy walks by outside the door on 41st, he's got a huge pencil over his shoulder, Overton, who's a fucking genius, it's Robin and he would run together when they were improv, and leaps off stage, goes out the door, grabs the pencil, brings it in, picks up a bar napkin off the table, puts it on his shoulder, he goes, dear mom, I'm still <laughs> shrinking. <laughs> One of the that's, great improvs I've ever seen. Well, that's that's really, really funny. That, yeah, you, 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 <laughs> I remember that story. You remember up by Catch a Rising Star, there was a, a restaurant called the Green Kitchen. Sure. Where we used to go afterwards. And, yeah, um, I know there was Seinfeld and uh, Brogan and... Uh... Yeah, Jay wasn't around as much then, but be Brogan, before he went out to become an angel in Hollywood, we used to always go there after. Yeah, and yeah like sure. The, the green latticework thing, uh, white and that, green. That's exactly right. And yeah, well, it was also because the eggs were also green. Anything you ordered <laughs> from that place had a little tinge you know, of shamrock. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> scurvy. Give me the scurvy platter. Yeah, the scurvy with everything on the side. Yeah. <laughs> Every one of us is feeling the effects of elevated stress right now. With the new realities of working from home, financial uncertainty, social distancing, and the overall stresses of our disrupted lives right now, it is no wonder that so many of us are lying awake at night, can't sleep, and are feeling sluggish, irritable, and downright exhausted. Not to mention the first line of defense for your immune system is obviously a good night's sleep. That's why I turn to the clinically proven sleep aid, Max Sleep. Did not have any of this. Asked for some because I don't want to uh, pitch things until I obviously try them. That's why I turned to the clinically proven sleep aid Max Sleep, which guarantees your best night's sleep in just three days or your money back. Max Sleep contains a patent pending combination of natural ingredients scientifically proven to optimize alpha brain waves for a calmer mind and a better sleep. It contains full spectrum CBD with zero THC, so you get all the benefits without getting high. I know for some of you, this commercial is opposite day, but not for everybody. In a recent clinical study, max sleep participants improved their quality of sleep and felt more rested after only three nights. They improved overall wellness and felt more alert with no morning grogginess. Many of you probably don't even remember what it feels like to get a good night's sleep. Well, I'm here to tell you when you finally get a full eight hours of deep, blissful sleep, you will wake up refreshed with tons of energy. Believe me, Omax Sleep with its proprietary CBD sleep blend is incredible and you'll feel a difference. I took it for the first time three days ago. Right now, still asleep. Doing this commercial in a blissful REM state. Listen to how lucid I sound. I'm asleep right now. And making more sense and looking more beautiful and Omax is offering my listeners 20% off their first bottle of Max Sleep plus free shipping. And if you don't experience your best night's sleep in just three nights, you can return it for a full refund. They are that confident. So if you're ready to relax your mind and get your best night's sleep ever, you need to try Max Sleep. Go to omaxhealth.com today. Enter code MILLER to get 20% off a one-month supply plus free shipping. And if you don't have your best sleep in just three nights, return it for a full refund. That's omaxhealth.com to get free shipping and 20% off site-wide with code MILLER. Again, that's omax.com, O-M-A-X.com, and use code MILLER. And I thank you. We're talking to the great Alan Zweibel, and we have trod the same boards, and it's... Uh, well, I don't know, Alan. I can see you writing an exultant book because when I look back on it, I, and I don't a lot uh, because that seems a little, well, it's like Gary go, it's like Larry Sanders going home watching a show again, which was always such a funny take. But exactly. um, when I look back, I feel so privileged. Christ, you can lead such a non-exciting life. When I think back on those moments, I could probably write a book if I chose because I'm exultant too about how lucky I was to be able to play. Well, that you know, that's exactly right. You know, when I I, I resisted writing this book uh, for a while because I still 
produce things. I just co-wrote a movie with Billy Crystal that stars him and Tiffany Haddish that's going to come out. Well, it's supposed to be in the fall. God knows now when anything's going to be in a movie theater again. So I'm still producing new stuff. But when I looked back at this and I said, and I committed to writing it, half the time, uh, Dennis, I kept on saying, wow, this is, what are the odds? This is sort of cool, you know? And, um, you know, on the, uh, the other extreme is, you know, having written, you know, for Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, I, I did a, uh, a special with Rob Reiner in the mid '90s, and on the special it was an ABC special where Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. I actually co-wrote a piece oh. for the 2,000-year-old man. Oh my God, you're kidding! So I mean, this is cool stuff. Yeah, you're led into the ultimate alcove there. I mean, that is uh, really that, that, that's like that's like Moliere asking you for some notes on Candide or something, just to be led in with those two guys. <laughs> I know you go way back with Billy, and I'm trying to think. Billy, uh, and I'm talking about Billy Crystal, who is one of the sweetest, funniest cats. He sent me a picture of Roberto Clemente I cherish to this day because he knew he was my hero. He doesn't have to do stuff like that. The best Oscar host ever, and just such a, and yet the one fly in his ointment is the initial night of SNL, I guess, uh, between dress and air, he gets whacked and he has that lonely ride. Were you in his world then? And what, what do you remember? Was he devastated? Yes, I was, you know, I met Billy at the clubs. Uh, I lived in, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the geography of Long Island, I lived with my parents after college in Woodmere, Long Island, and about four towns over lived Billy in Long Beach, Long Island. We became fast friends at Catch a Rising Star. He used to pick me up every night at my parents' house. We'd drive into the city, do mm. our respective sets, then he would drive me home, and we would listen to the cassettes you know, in his car, critiquing each mm -hmm. other. So we predated SNL. And as a matter of fact, when Lorne gave me the job, okay, for this show that would start, you know, well, we didn't meet until July about the show that would premiere in October. So this was in the spring, a couple of months before. Billy had been talking to Lorne about the possibility of he, Billy, being one of the original not ready for primetime players. Well, it didn't work out for Billy, but I, I think he landed on his feet quite nicely. But that particular night you're talking about, Billy killed during dress rehearsal. Mm. And, you know, the, the show hadn't taken its form yet. It was the first show. There were three comedians. There was Billy, Andy Kaufman, and Valerie Bromfield. Okay? Mm. And then there were two musical acts, Billy Preston. Yeah, so they're top heavy with uh, Alec. Yeah, and Janice Ian. Plus you had a monologist, the great monologist, George Carlin Hoston. So you would have had like seven or eight monologues during the course of the show. Billy, uh, to my knowledge, what had happened was uh, between dress and air, they wanted to cut Billy's time down from like seven to three or something like that. Right. And right. Billy ended up he walking. And um, mm -hmm. he went home devastated back to Long Island thinking, you know, this was the new game in town, thinking that it was over, you know, and um, it was really tough, really tough for him. And by the way, folks, just going back, if you've never heard Janice and co-mingle society's child with who's on first, you haven't lived. Oh, yeah. You know, it was Abbott Costello and Ian before they <laughs> broke up, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but you vaudeville fans out there. So I'm trying to think when you first alight on Saturday Night Live, is Herb already on board? Oh, Herb is already on. Herb Sargent was, he was our parent. 
Okay, he was the old guy in the big office down the hall with the big map on the wall. And I gravitated towards him because my orientation was jokes. Okay, mm -hmm. I wrote jokes. That was what I did for seven dollars. And what got me the job on SNL, I gave Lauren 1,100 jokes, a book uh, that I made with 1,100 of my jokes. But he hired me based on the first joke that I had written, which was also Chevy used it in the first weekend update to show you how long ago it was. I had written a joke saying that the post office was about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. It's a 10 cent stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter. Okay. So, <laughs> so that caught Herb's attention and weekend update was joke oriented, as you know, right. because you, you, you did it and you did it masterfully. But also Chevy didn't need, Chevy didn't need news of the day. Almost. He was such a great, uh, you know, great interlocutor, his personality. All he needed was a joke to make faces off of. Absolutely. He was a naughty boy. He was a naughty, good looking boy, you know, that he can uh, make faces behind other people and, and do that stuff. So Herb, I gravitated toward and mm. he became um, a, a mentor. I spent a lot of time in, with him in that office with a big map on the wall. Yeah, that's what I did. And when I went on to do other things. Like when we create, co when I co-created its Gary Shandling show that brought me out to L.A., nobody saw the show for a while because it was on Showtime, which New York didn't get. <laughs> okay. mm -hmm, right. Wasn't even on the island of Manhattan. There you go. So I sent Herb, uh, you know, a VHS of it every single week. I, I went broke with FedEx bills, but he, you know, he became somebody that I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to make him proud, you know? Oh, yeah. Listen to that. I never felt more in the game than leaving after writing with Herb. And that's who I wrote with almost 99% of the time. I'd sit with Herb, and we'd go out and catch a bite. He'd take, he introduced me to Elaine's. We'd go up. I never... Listen, I always feel like my whole thing in show business is a bit of a bluff because I'm a Pittsburgh boy. But to walk into Elaine's with Herb... And bump into those cats, man, and oh sit there God. and have those bad eggs. Talk about green eggs. It wasn't the greatest food, but it, Herb ruled Elaine's. He ruled Elaine's, and it's there. You know, you, you saw everybody there from Woody Allen to Gay Talese. I mean, they were Carl Bernstein was there a lot, and um, Jimmy Breslin, Carl Norman Mailer, the whole the whole crowd, man. Oh God! And you know, the one thing that bothers me just a little bit so far is Billy. Crystal, just to get back to him for a second, sent me a picture of Manny Sanguian. So he must like you better. So I got Clemente and you got Manny Sanguian. <laughs> I can guarantee you in your shot, Manny was swinging because that <laughs> motherfucker came out of. That's so weird that you would mention the two because Sanguian stayed overnight on the beach when Roberto went down delivering the aid to Puerto Rico. Oh, no. He couldn't believe he was dead, and he stayed up overnight on the beach. He kept. He said he just thought he'd walk out of the... He said I, I just so thought he had to be on a piece of... So you walk out of the water onto the shore. Oh, well, God. Well, on, on some flotsam or jetsam, it didn't even go as deep as a mystical thing. He just thought... I, I just couldn't believe he was dead. I thought I'd see oh, him coming up, and that man. always broke my heart. Sangy, man, he was a... A free swinger. We're talking to, speaking of free swingers, this guy introduced me to Plato's East. No, I'm kidding. Alan's Rebel, <laughs> the book is Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. So we got Billy. Now listen, I loved Gary, uh, and there was a time there when Gary and I were 
super close. It kind of fell away, but he was a certifiable genius. I used to go out and write jokes with him at the Tonight Show when he hosted it. I always thought he was one of, if not the quickest, funniest joke writer. Uh, you oh. know, he, and if and if you set a setup to him, Gary had an eerie thing where if you'd go, hey, what about this? And he could pay the joke off. He saw it immediately. So tell me about Gary. It's tough, tough, though, tough in a way, because Gary was. Uh... Oh, no, no. I had a period of estrangement with him also after we ended his Gary Shandling show. And it was only uh, because of my wife who called Gary and said, listen, I'm bringing Alan over and I'm putting you in a room and you're not oh, going to come out until your friends again. You've been t uh, through so much together. So he, you know, I know just about everybody had, uh, it, everyone admired Gary, but Gary was difficult. He was oh, difficult. Yeah. How that happened was uh, after I left SNL, I'm sitting in New York, I'm sitting at the Friars Club, as a matter of fact, under a, a picture, I think of, uh, oh, I can't, maybe Buddy Hackett, Alan King, one of those guys, the phone mm -hmm. rings. It's uh, Bernie Brillstein who managed me, and he was with Brad Gray who managed Gary, and I think managed you at the time, did yeah, he not? Yeah, my managers too, right? Uh -huh. So uh, Bernie said, do you know who Gary Shanling is? I said, yeah, I've seen him on Letterman. I think he's funny. He says, well, he's doing a... Uh, a special for a Showtime that's going straight into the shit house unless they get somebody to rewrite the script. Bernie was a poet, as you remember. Yes. So, so they sent me the script. I called up Bernie. I said, I think I could, I, I like this. I think I could be of help. So they flew me out to L.A. I go straight from the airport. I go to a restaurant. I meet Gary, who's wearing dark sunglasses in the restaurant. <laughs> right, and right. so I having this dinner with him, I can't tell if he likes what I have to say. I don't know if he likes me. I can't read his face because he's got sunglasses on. The uh, meal is over. I say, okay. He says, well, uh, we'll keep in touch. So I figured, okay, I'll never hear from him again. I go check into the hotel. And now it's 1 o'clock in the morning, but it's 4 o'clock for my big Jewish body because I had just flown out. <laughs> and the phone rings in the room. And I go, hello, Alan, it's Gary. Hey, man, what's doing? Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. You think it's his <laughs> diet or what? <laughs> so, <laughs> Him and Saget. That's all they did was penis. I spent a day with them at point doom. It was nothing but eight hours of dick jokes. So Dick funny. jokes. I, I, I'm laughing. I call my wife and I said, I think I found a writing partner. <laughs> he was insane. And But you know, if I, Dennis, if I live to be a thousand, there's no way I write that dog's penis joke. No, well, that's the he, Bob. Bob and him went into a. Uh, it was like uh, Picasso working cubist for a while there. They were they, <laughs> they were they were doing all the same sort of riffs and uh, uh, templates for jokes, but they had put them all under what the penises taste like. So I, I remember that period. Dave Coulier would come in eventually and do a, uh, you know, a. a Impression, impersonation of a penis as a moray eel making sounding <laughs> off the coast of that was the entire day with those guys picture your face in the mirror do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes how's about the crow's feet or those large under eye bags now imagine poof they're gone i'm not talking about some risky expensive surgery just gone minutes it's called plexiderm Clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags and does it in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. 
now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look like me just from 10 years ago, simply put. I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm lasts for hours and goes on clear. So nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you choose to tell them. Intimacy. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code Miller for 50 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off for a 30 day supply. This offer is also available by calling 1 800 685 1292 and mentioning code Miller. Plexiderm is backed by a 30 day money back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use code Miller at checkout. Once again, that's triplexiderm.com. Code Miller. And I thank you. We're talking to the great Alan Zweibel. <laughs> what a tonic it is for me. Um, I know you worked with Marty. And uh, I have to say, the Sam Kennison once, but there's been around four or five times in my life where I've been helpless on the ropes, laughing to the point where I really had to say to somebody, <laughs> Kennison did it once, and Marty has done it more than once, just saying, you, you've got to stop now. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to vomit. There, there's Martin Short, when he gets on a, a roll, I remember watching Valley of the Dolls with him up at Snug Harbor once in the middle of the night. We were drunk on tings. And uh, he, he, he had me laughing so hard when Susan Hayward was singing, uh, because it's my yard and I will try hard to welcome friends I have yet to know. I said, you got to stop. I'm going to fucking die. Tell me about your, your work with Marty. Unbelievable. You know, this was really interesting. When I was at SNL, Gilda said to me at one point, she says, Martin Short is the funniest person on the planet. And I hadn't heard of Marty yet. Uh, he wasn't on SCTV. I, I was not on, I was not familiar with him yet. And then when I ultimately got to see him, when I saw Ed Grimley and all the <laughs> things that he did, I said, Jesus, this guy is special. Gilda made me promise that I would become friends with him. So we, because uh, they used to live together when they were both in Toronto mm -hmm. in Second City. Yeah, they were. That was he must have made her die in bed pillow talk. You know, absolutely. <laughs> and I'd see him at parties and and whatever. But he he had a show uh, that was coming to Broadway. It was Broadway bound uh, called Fame Becomes Me. Right. And I had just come up. He asked me if I would write the book for it. And I wanted to really badly, but I had a, a novel coming out. I had a book tour planned, so time didn't work out. So here's Bernie once again. I get home from a three-month book tour. I'm thrilled to see my wife, thrilled to see my kids. No sooner do I take my coat off than the phone rings. It's Bernie. I'm going, hey, Bernie. He goes, how's the tour? I go, yeah. And I start to tell him, he goes, yeah, that's great. Now go back to the fucking airport and get your ass out to San Francisco. Because Marty Short show is going straight into the toilet. This toilet that Bernie kept talking about he, it was the toilet of the shithouse. One of the two. Bernie, so, Bernie was like the Paul Revere of it's going into turnaround. He was the one. That's like, exactly. He rode through the streets. He just yelling. <laughs> trying. So I went to the airport. I went to San Francisco. And I saw the show that I thought I could help. So I, uh, I I stayed with it. 
And I, so I was with the show in San Francisco, then Toronto, then Chicago, and then finally on Broadway. And so during that, that time, I would watch the show mm -hmm. uh, during the night, and then I'd go to my hotel room and be on the phone with Marty till two, three in the morning, rewriting and writing jokes that we would put in the next yeah, he's day. Hard work. And I got to tell you something. You, you know, Dennis, there's nothing greater in a collaboration with uh, the synergy of it when it's clicking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just like tennis or any other thing, when you're with somebody who you feel is stronger than you, it brings up your game. It was a lot of fun. It was yeah, so we're friends. The chance, as they used to put it in baseball, and Marty was absolutely, absolutely, what a prison to shoot it through. It always reminds me of the uh, album cover of Dark Side of the Moon. You shoot, you shoot something in on a broad spectrum. And it comes out in that beautiful broken down spectral beams of different colors. And that. there yeah, you go. Marty's That's exactly right. And Marty is that. And to to be, we're working on something now together, cross country. You know, you know, all email stuff. And you know, to, to speak to Martin Short, you don't have to have been at the dinner that he was with the night before, because he will tell you not only who was there, but he'll impersonate each person, whether it's Geffen or Mick Jagger or any, you know, and you just feel, oh, I was, I just had dinner with those guys. Yeah. He's uh yeah. It's like a table for one and you get the whole last supper sitting across <laughs> from you. Uh, we're talking to the great Allen's white bell and nobody had their, was in the center of that SNL at the beginning than he. And I, I only have to say that this is a man who's worked on simultaneously you talk about two different sensibilities comedically, but Roseanne, Rosanna Dana for the great uh, Gilda Radner and John's uh, samurai character. John, a bull in a china shop. And, uh, well, Gilda, I always thought the delicate, fine piece of china in the china shop. She, she had a ribald side, too. But tell me about, uh, well, first off, who comes up with the samurai thing? Uh, John auditioned for the show with that character, okay? Mm -hmm. So when he auditioned, he came in... Uh, with a sword and, uh, you know, and, and he did it. Tom Schiller, another writer on the show, oh, whose sure. father, uh, Bob, wrote all of the Isle of Lucy's and then later right. the Norman Lear shows, Tom came up with Samurai Hotel. And it was a <laughs> sketch with Richard Pryor. And they thought it was a one-shot deal. And it was very, very successful. And I'm sitting at my desk and Lorne walks by and says, you worked in a deli before you came here, right? I said, yes, I did. He said, well, right, can you write Samurai Delicatessen? I said, you bet, boss. <laughs> Dennis, I had no idea what that meant, okay? So I write Samurai always Deli. Always affirm, always affirm, as Del Close said. If Lord there says you go, it, you always go, yes, affirm. And then run to the library, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I write Samurai Deli, and what was great about that, not only did it, launch really launched the form and i wrote like the next nine or ten that came afterwards it also got me to uh it's how i broke the ice to become really friendly with uh another mentor of mine buck henry because mm -hmm. he was in it and it mm -hmm. was the first show that he hosted and i had him coming in it was the night before the super bowl and he ordered a, a corned beef sandwich that john made and the filler was all about, I think it was the Steelers were in the um, Super Bowl the next day, Super Sunday. So I gave Buck, who knew nothing about football, all mm -hmm. these phrases about giving it to Harris and, you know, Bradshaw, if he looks downfield, da 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 
and just to cover John's making this sandwich. So it, it, it served a couple of purposes. It was really exciting. So was the template then like Billy's Lounge Singer that you would just put it in different um, little universes? Uh, That's exactly hotels. right. Yeah. That's and exactly Buck, right. I, I think know. Buck penned the guy at the desk that Dustin comes up to. It was probably an alter ego character in The Graduate. So Buck would play it sort of like that guy at the hotel when Dustin's checking in, right? Oh, sort you of know a, something that for me, you know, when, when we were growing up, I don't know if you remember, I'm a little older than you. Remember that was the week that was? Yeah, sure. That was the week that was dun, 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 dun. TW3. Nancy Ames, you sound just like her. She... TW3, yeah. <laughs> that, well, which was produced by Herb Sargent here in the United States. And oh, Buck was on it, as was Bob Dishy and, and, and a few others. And um, But I sort of, I want to say I remember him from that show. I can't really say that. I think I learned he was on it afterwards. So my first real knowledge of Buck was the desk clerk during The Graduate. And then I used to, when I was in college, watch him come on The Carson Show and talk to Johnny for eight minutes about absolutely nothing and make yeah. me laugh my ass off. I yeah, just never, was... what a wit, you know? Well, he was beautiful in that he realized that the score with Carson was not about, uh, you know, and it was, listen, Johnny made me so nervous that I got a little rat-a-tat-tat with him. And uh, it would make oh, him I laugh. Know that. I always thought, boy, I'm missing the conviviality here because when you let Carson in and the couple times that we had those sort of interactions, he was, he was, you know, you felt like you were Esther Williams and he was the cigarette boat. I mean, the cat <laughs> could really lead you through the, the, uh, the, the the waves it was uh and i i remember buck being like that with him he liked guys david steinberg and he commingled beautifully too because sure you weren't trying to score like you weren't trying to be a score monkey you were just trying to be with carson and he was a great henry higgins we're talking to the great alan's wabell and the book is uh, folks how much you want to read this book after just listening to these stories laugh lines my life helping funny people be funnier i remember i met gilda only once towards the end and uh, she was sick, and I was in a doctor's office in L.A., and this lady came up to me. It was so sweet and affecting and said, Hi, Dennis. And I said, Oh, hi, how are you? And uh, this was so far into it that I didn't know it was Gilda right away. And uh, she said, It's me, Gilda. And I said, Oh, my God. And I hugged her, and she was so frail. And I remember I got home, and I sent her white roses. And she said, I have a card here that she sent me to this day. It meant so much to me. It says, Smooth move, Miller. And uh, <laughs> she was so uh, she was so beautiful, but she was very sick when I met her. But tell me about Gilda. It must have made you guys light up to make her laugh. She had such a groovy little sweet smile and laugh. Well, she's so yeah. She for me and uh, for most others, she was the one that you wanted to not only make laugh, you wanted her to think that you were funny. And I met her. The very first day of SNL in July of 75, I, um, I walk into the room in Talorn's office on the 17th floor of 30 Rock, and I look around, and I see Belushi and Aykroyd and Franken and Chevy and Lorraine, and they're improv And Dennis, I was, I was a gag writer for Catskill mm -hmm. Comics, and I'm going, I had never even heard of, I swear to God at that time, of Second City or the Groundlings. Right, and I right. see them creating things right in front of me. I got spooked. 
And I go, wait a second. So Lorne had a, 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 a big potted plant in the corner of his office. I went behind the plant and I squatted down. I hid. I was that scared. And the mm -hmm. meeting starts. And a couple of minutes into it, I hear a girl's voice from the other side of the plant saying, can you help me be a parakeet? And I go, I parted the leaves and I look out and it's Gilda. <laughs> and I go, what? I go, what? And she says, yeah, I think it'd be really funny if I stood on a perch and scrunched up my face and spoke like a parakeet, but I need a writer to help me figure out what the parakeet should say. Are you a good parakeet writer? And I had no <laughs> idea what she was talking about. But once again, just like with Samurai Deli, I said, yes, I'm a great parakeet writer. She invites herself behind the plant because she was also nervous. It was her first TV show, too. Oh so we God. get to talking back there. We get to making each other laugh. And then when Lauren calls on me, I become tongue-tied. She goes out in front of the, uh, the uh, plant, addresses the room, attributes her idea of her playing a parakeet to me. She said, so <laughs> Bell's got this great idea where I play a parakeet, and he's really funny, and we're going to be... Uh, we're going to be writing partners and platonic friends forever. Now, oh <laughs> the writing partners part I was thrilled about. But, you know, platonic friends, you know, we, we all have had those experiences where, all right, look, um, if these are the rules, I'll play by them now. But one day you'll open your eyes and you'll see the glory that's sitting across the table from you. Yeah. So. Uh, we were platonic, and we came up with Roseanne, Rosanna Danner, and I was a big contributor to Emily Latella and mm -hmm. all of that. And when she got sick, uh, I asked her, I said, what should I do? And I was doing the Shamling show at this point. She said, make me laugh. And that mm -hmm. became my role in my platonic friend's life when she was sick mm -hmm. to the point where when she took a turn for the worse and I went to see the Sinai to give her to give blood. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on the gurney and a nurse comes up to me and hands me a pen and pad and I go, what's this? And she says, well, Gilda likes to know whose blood she's getting. Write her something nice. She's having a tough time. So I wrote, dear Gilda, I knew I'd get some fluid of mine into you one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she must have chortled. Ah, which, which I think said it all. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll tell you what, I look back at uh, Lauren's, uh, and people always say, well, what's Lauren like? You know, I think I was more scared of him than the people who would ask me about him. But I always thought he had uh, a Gertrude Stein sense of salon because to buttress Danny, who was so almost Jack Webbian to me, but a genius in that, his iambic pentameter was so beautiful. And John, who was barely tethered, and Gilda, who was so delicate, for him to arrange that team well, there's Lauren Strength. In addition to ripping you a new one midway between dress and air when you were in a seafood restaurant and the wine was red on the table and it should be white with sea, you know, those <laughs> sort right. of little things that he would notice. But putting together that team, Jesus, you, how, how soon into it, Alan, did you realize, Christ, I'm, I'm with the 27 Yankees here. This is low. Well, you know something that's really interesting, Dennis, because when we started this show, and I've had this talk with people like Tina Fey and Seth Meyers, you know, I said, I, I wondered what was, who had the greater thrill? A bunch of kids in the mid-70s who were all in the uh, uh, early or mid-20s, you know, who started a show. And our only mandate was Lauren telling us, let's make each other laugh. And if we make each other laugh, we'll put it on TV. And hopefully there's other people that will also find us funny.
And we started this show and all of a sudden it gained traction and an audience. We saw our names in the paper and we got these trophies, you know, every year, these Emmy Awards. Did we have the bigger thrill or the or kid growing up watching this show and then some, you know, having a dream and then someday finding themselves on that stage? You know, right. so I would debate it with them. And uh, as, uh, and I think they had the bigger one, quite frankly, although it was huge for us. It yeah. was, you know, something uh, we thought that this was TV. Most of us had not worked on a Gary Marshall show or whatever right. was standard fare in Hollywood prior to that. We thought this was TV. You write something on Tuesday. It's on television Saturday. You right. know, when we when I did the show, you know, after dress rehearsal on Saturday, if I got my changes uh, uh, you know, for the sketches to uh, cue cards on time, I would go upstairs, watch the 11 o'clock news, and if something struck me as funny, I'd write a joke, and it was on Weekend Update a half hour later. There were two episodes of the show during my five years there. There were two times that while they were on the air live, I was under the desk writing jokes and handing it up. So wow. for a writer to get immediate feedback, but you know, it wasn't until after I left and we went out into the quote-unquote real world. Yeah, we knew it was special. Yeah, you know, the likes was. of Jagger and, and George Harrison and everybody who came through those doors. We went, wow. Yeah, wow. Chevy told me once pretty early on, I think Chevy broke first, obviously, as he was walking sure. out of 30 Rock and a bus stop. A bus stop. You know, <laughs> I, 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 he said everybody on the bus is looking out the window at him and the bus driver was saying, peeping the horn, he's saying, and you had he's we were working in anonymity. I think I think Chevy had a brush with fame early on when he was in college. I think he played piano with uh, the Steely Dan guys. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Chevy was a th it was a trio Steely Dan in college, and Chevy was the pianist. So oh, uh, wow. you know he had some he he must have had a brush with it way back when. But he said I realized, and then you guys win the Emmy the first time. I think you go out to L.A to win it must be like the the outsiders and all of a sudden you end up in mr Charles in the vip room and who do you bump into there you're like zelig at this point absolutely well we went there and there was this young kid who i had never heard of before who we were upstairs uh, at mr Charles in the private room there and there's this young guy wearing overalls who is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with chevy and it ends up that this young guy was robin williams <laughs> okay, so the people that this attracted, Eric Idle, the Python guys, it just kept on coming, you know, and um, it was mind boggling, but it was also our jobs, you know, and so when I left, and I, it was almost like, what the hell was that? Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was pretty amazing. Robin was like one of those mini dust storms in the desert. It eventually grew into a Scirocco. But I remember when I first <laughs> met him, I, I, I thought, who is this? I forget what they call those dust bunnies or something. But all of a sudden, you'd just see what's going on in that part of the room. And you'd see frenetics. And then you'd go over, you'd hear eight voices. Then somewhere you'd hear Prime Minister both a white courtesy phone. And you just like hung on because you thought, oh, Jesus. yeah. It was a dust. There was a whirlwind. You know, napkins started flying off the table. There was <laughs> <laughs> the wind too. started. Yeah, the the, the tablecloths were flapping. It was and he too one of the sweetest souls. Yeah, he that's too, exactly. You, oh, and the, the nicest, sweetest guy in the world.
You Absolutely. can tell he was in a. Uh, you can tell he was in an attic alone with a lot of QVC figurines from the Boer War, and it <laughs> translated into him being a a sweet soul. And uh, I loved Robin. I miss him so much to this day. Well, listen, Alan, I can't tell you what a tonic this is for me. I never read the Tom Shales book because I remember Shales lit me up so adroitly when I was on Weekend Update that when he called me to be in the book, I said, no. I said, let's just leave it where Oh, it I didn't you know that, was... Dennis, because well, to my no, mind... He, no, but it was oh. such a good line. He said, the Miller manages to make turning the page the highlight of the weekly update. So when, oh, they, called said, <laughs> when they called and said, do you want to be in it? I said, you know, Tom, I don't, I don't have any rancor here, but let's just leave it where it was. Uh, I don't know that I'm your oh, guy. My bel- so, uh, Please I can't accept wait to my belated condolences. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to read this. This book, though, because I uh, hate Dennis. Tutorial. Can I uh, can I interject? Uh, this is uh, Christian, one of the producers on the show. I, I feel like it, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask uh, Alan to tell our audience about the week that Milton Berle hosted. Uh, there's something specific in there that I well, think everybody will enjoy. Well, hearing. Not, no, tell me. Well, I love we a go. good you Uncle Milty story. When, when I was writing jokes for stand-up comedians, I was uh, 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 part of what I did was a lot of those comedians. I uh, ended up uh, at Friars Club roasts. And back then, yeah. they were stag luncheons. And those roasts, whoever you would roast, you know, you would write jokes about what their stereotype, okay? So uh, for Milton Berle, the two stereotypes about him was that he always stole jokes. He stole material mm-hmm. from people. And also the size of his schlong, okay? Mm-hmm. It was legendary. And people made jokes about it. I can't, I don't know. I've heard this attributed to a lot of people, okay? Um, one of them was Dick Sean, but also David Brenner. It was that they walked into the um, steam room at the Friars Club where Milton was in the steam room naked. And let's say it was Dick Sean. He walked in. He saw Milton's dick and thought that Milton was there with his son. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so now Milton comes to the host SNL the week that I'm there, uh, the week you know, I'm, while I'm still there on the show. And Lauren assigned me to him, uh, not for, probably because Milton had a, you know, he had an appetite for jokes and that was what I, you know, I, I did and all that. I'm in Milton's, dressing room now Gilda and I had written something together but she was rehearsing somebody else's sketch so I said listen I'm going to be in uh, in Milton's dressing room come get me when you're done with the rehearsing the sketch Mm -hmm. I'm in Milton's dressing room I'm sitting on a couch there's a coffee table in front of me on the other side of the coffee table stands Milton wearing uh you know one of those bathrobes that come maybe mid-thigh all right yeah. Uh, yeah 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 And I say to him really casually, as an icebreaker, I wanted nothing more from the guy when I said, you know, Milton, it's so weird that I'm meeting you now because for years I wrote jokes about your dick and (laughs) here I am meeting you. Usually it's the other way around, okay? And he says, oh, you mean you've never seen it? And I go, "Uh, uh, uh uh-uh. He goes, well, would you like to? Dennis? I am somewhere between the N and the O in no. Okay. <laughs> Whatever air there is between those letters, when Milton, <laughs> he, he, he parts his bathrobe oh, and takes man. out this anaconda and he, he puts it before me. Now, 
I'm looking into it, okay? And he says, pretty cool, huh? I said, yeah, real cool. No sooner am I saying real cool than the door opens. Gilda came looking for me. <laughs> she sees me looking at the, into this dick, going, hey, really cool. And she goes, uh, it's White Bell. I'll see you later. And she slams the door and runs away. You should have looked up at her and said, never mind. <laughs> yeah. You know something? If there was only a second take on that. Yeah. Oh, Damn, my I missed God. that one. I only did one roast. It was at the Friars. It was for Chevy, not the mean one later in life where it got a little too close to the bone. But when Chevy was front running, I did a roast for him way back in, I don't even remember, in New York. Oh, was it fun? I went up 15 out of 17. The word cocksucker oh. was jejun at that point. It had been done so frequently. I get up <laughs> and Sammy Kahn's looking at me. He's down front. And I remember I get up and I go, nice to be here at the Friars. Uh, you know, Milton Burl's dick is so big, it makes me think he stole that, too. And uh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm telling you, Alan, it's like you could hear a pin drop. Oh, and I'm Jesus just standing Christ. up there thinking, fuck. Unbelievable. <laughs> I forgot he was a revered figure there. It was like I was yeah. going after oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, what a tonic this has been. Good to talk to you, brother. As I've said, we've been talking to Alan Zwebel, and he is, uh, well... He's a brilliant melding of an everyman and the sharpest knife in the drawer. That's all I can tell you. A sweet man. That's one of the vibes I get off Billy, too. It's so funny they knew each other when because same sort of thing. Just regular cats who happen to be geniuses, brilliant, and sweet men. Laugh Lines is the book, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. Thanks for the time, Alan. It was a delight. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk at you, brother. You bet. Oh, my God. What a story. <laughs> Uh, I remember going to see Jackie Mason one night with Robin when he had his one-man Broadway show, and <laughs> Robin had that great laugh when something would really make him laugh. And we went into, uh, we heard a knock at Jackie's door after, and he said, "Come on in," and we go in, and he's in one of those half robes. And they always leave their socks on; it's some weird thing. It's like, you know, <laughs> of course, <laughs> got the black socks on, the white robe that's mid cap. He turns around, and we can't see his Johnson, but he's got an orange thong on. And uh, he goes, hey, come on in, boys. And Robin just explodes in laughter. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie actually ties oh. the rope up, and we can't gather it. We're, we're not sitting there for a couple minutes. We don't want to be rude, because the guy turns to Robin. And just, you, you just remember you could hear the first three notes of Robin's like, ha! <laughs> and uh, I think Jackie was a little put off by us. And Robin, well, he, had, he was sober at that point. We weren't stoned or anything. It's just it was such an incongruous scene to finally meet. And, you know, Jackie had a tribble on his head. <laughs> sure did. You know, his, his toupee might as well have the word welcome printed on it. He's a short white robe, black sock. <laughs> and he's got, uh, you know, a Cote d'Azur French guy thong on. They glow orange. Unfucking believable Anywho, he's fun, isn't he, Alan? Jeez, what a nice man, too. Oh, he's great. The publicist uh, sent me, you know, a digital copy of the book, and the worst thing was that I had to skim it to, you know, prepare. Well, um, if you're looking, I, I'm doing a show now for RT America, and uh, Larry King last year got sick, and he asked me to sit in a couple days a week. He's come back to work now, Larry, but he only wanted to do a couple days a week, so I'm doing a couple, and uh, I don't know where, he, I think that's on Hulu, and it's somewhere on DTV. I don't know the number. I'm a newbie over there, but Alan's going to come on there, and we'll have a chat. So if you want a little uh, a little more, you can look for it there. But um, 
Christian, how's our time? We good? You know what? Our time is great. I think uh, ending on, you know, Milton Berle schlong and uh, Jackie Mason's, uh, you know, banana hammock. I don't know that there's anywhere else we could possibly go. Well, all I can tell you, folks, when you listen, and there are times I do imperious uh, just as a stage stick or something, nobody more shocked or more uh, grateful. I can't believe that I get to know some of those stories or even be in a couple stories. And, uh, man, I was such a schlub guy. I don't want to say that that's mean, but I was uh, sort of out, out of it. <laughs> socially distanced before it became folk <laughs> and to think I ever got to meet guys like uh, Robin or Alan or any of those guys or Chevy and uh, it, it just it boggles my mind I really am I have the biggest smile on my face now because I feel like God gave me the mother load letting me uh, be a comedian and then you know that comes down to any sort of uh, fandom you have, too. And uh, I don't think I've ever planted the flag on Everest, but I've certainly had a loyal cadre of people who we seem to laugh at similar things over the years. So I, I thank you. I truly feel that I've been uh, blessed. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Dennis Miller Option, exclusively on Westwood One. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on the Westwood One app, westwoodone.com, and on Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate, review, and share. Until next time, that's the show, and we are out of here. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. <laughs> <laughs>